square to the third. And Safir admitting people? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Perfect. Okay, uh, shalom friends, Chag uh, and welcome to another exciting Chagura public shiur. Uh, today we have the privilege of hearing from Rabbi Lieutenant Zarginian, Zarnigian, sorry. For those who are new, the Chagura is a physical and virtual international Bet Midrash dedicated to exploring the classical Sephardi approach to Torah and committed to getting to know God by embracing the Torah as a lens for the world. We currently have a membership model with two weekly shiurim, journals, events, Chagruta sessions, a publishing house, and more exciting developments to come. I highly suggest to join this wonderful initiative. And um, on to our speaker, uh, Rabbi Yosef Zernigian is the assistant rabbi of the Spanish and Portuguese Kahal Kadosh Mikveh Israel in Philadelphia, USA. He was born and raised in Great Neck, New York. Prior to graduating from Queens College with a degree in economics, he, he pursued the rabbinic path of his great grandfather by studying under Rabbi Chaim Sapato and Rabbi Nahum E. Rabinovich Zifanali Bafa. Uh, Rabbi Zernigin subsequently received semicha from Rabbi Sam Kassin and Rabbi Yaakov Peretz of the Sheb Har Sephardic Center in Jerusalem. He serves his country as a chaplain in the U.S. Air Force Reserve and also works as a translator of medieval Sephardic Jewish texts for the Shehakot Project. Uh, that's really impressive. Um, a PDF of the source sheets has been sent on the chats, and we'll send it again on the chat box. If you have any questions, uh, you can post it in the chat box, and uh, God willing, there'll be time at the end uh, to, to, for questions to be answered. Uh, the shiur will also be recorded and posted up at our website. Um, the Chaburah is dedicated to Torah being cutting edge, being relevant, and being the light of our lives. We are dedicated to having a Bet Midrash where one does not need to hang the reality by the door when sitting to learn. Rabbi Zernigian is clearly someone who embodies those values in his life, and uh, once again, it is a privilege and honor to hear from him. Rabbi, the floor is yours. All right. Oh, I want to thank you, first of all, for your kind words. And of course, with uh, the permission of uh, yourself, the Chabura, I also would like to give a special uh, acknowledgement to our Parnas Emeritus, Mr. Leon Levy, who's uh, with us here today. Um, Mr. Levy is really the pure embodiment of a gentleman first class and also a treasure trove of, uh, you know, uh, our heritage and knowledge. So. I thank him for his presence. Um, I want to begin with a joke, if I may. You know, the Gemara says Rimeir would always begin his lessons in the yeshiva with a joke. Imagine you have a prophet of the like of Yeheskel, Yirmiyah, Yeshaya, and they compose this wonderful work. It's called the, the, the Scroll of Isaiah, the Scroll of Jeremiah. Great book, Barnes and Noble's bestseller. And, you know, before, uh, before it makes the shelves, there's a problem. A problem arises. They submit the work to the editors and they hear back, dear author, thank you for submitting your work to the Tanakh editorial committee. After careful deliberation, we have determined that we cannot make use of the scroll at the present time. We recognize the merits of your work and we wish you success in some future writing. But the current scroll just does not meet our literary standards. Some committee members recommend that you try reading the scrolls of Esther and Samuel before your next attempt. Respectfully, the editors. Now this might sound like a ridiculous joke, and to an extent it is, but 
there is a sliver of truth within uh, within that joke that I saw at what point in time. I could not trace down the exact source for that. But uh, a lot of people are not aware that within the greater scope of biblical tradition, Am Israel's biblical tradition, there are many, many works which never merited the light of day. And by that, I mean they didn't make the quote-unquote canon. So today I want to discuss with you, God willing, what it is exactly that makes something quote-unquote canon. What are the criteria that are needed that our hachamin, our sages, uh, officially prescribe? And why it is that certain works, such as the Book of Maccabees, did not make this uh, this cutoff. And one last point that we're going to be touching throughout this shiur is whether or not one is permitted to study those works which are not a part of the canon. There's uh, a lot of confusion and misconception regarding uh, the title of some of these works. Some refer to as the Apocrypha, some refer to as whatever. We're going to touch on these shortly with relevance to Hanukkah. Now, source number one, I'm going to selectively go through the sources as I see fit to try to keep the scope of the lecture you know, within a reasonable time frame. Source number one is a very relevant source. This is from Rabbi Moshe Mitrani, one of my favorite hachamim. He was a colleague of Maran, Rabbi Joseph Karo. Uh, sat on his betin. He wrote a very valuable work called Kiryat Sefer. This work embodies all of the laws of the Torah that Maimonides discusses in his Mishneh Torah. And Rabbi Mitrani uh, adds run-on commentary when restating the Mishneh Torah. Beautiful commentary. So over here, he discusses Hanukkah and Purim, and he says that there are those, uh, he, he's quoting from the Talmud when he says, There are some who say that the institution of Hanukkah and Purim uh, rests on this verse in Parashat Shoftim, when it says, inquire of your father and he will tell you. What does that, what does that mean exactly? So we're going to see. The context over here is a question that the sages, the, the Gemara in Tractate Shabbat uh, uh, raises with regard to how we're able to institute new holidays. How is it that we are, we are even able to have a holiday of Hanukkah, a holiday of Purim? Did the Torah ever tell us to celebrate these holidays? Where does it say that one is permitted to do this? Could we just freely add holidays as we see fit to the Jewish calendar? So the Talmud says yes, but with certain caveats. One is, uh, one caveat is that that holiday must be instituted by our uh, national institutions. Uh, in this particular case, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. And so, Rabbi Mitrani goes on to say, the sages uh, elaborated the following to justify or to warrant rather Purim and Hanukkah. They derive the, uh, the institution of Purim as already having its roots in the war that the Jewish people had with Amalek in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu in the wilderness, where during the war, uh, upon the uh, temporary victory, Moshe Rabbeinu uh, instructs that he write this victory, this series of events, as a, mem a memorandum. Write this as a memorandum within the scroll. 
ve'amru, when the sages say, what does it mean in the scroll? Basefer is in reference to, this is an allusion to, that which is written in the Megillah. What does that mean? Well, that's a reference to Haman, right? Haman stemming from the line of Amalek, from Agag, who is an Amalekite. And so this entire institution of Purim is really a fulfillment of remembering that which Amalek did to us. And consequently, that which we are obligated to do not to forget what Amalek did to us, and to always mention them verbally. Parenthetically, based on this um, understanding of the Talmud, Nachmanides, Ranban famously noted that one may fulfill their obligation of hearing Parashat Zahor by hearing the Megillah. In the event that one was not able to hear the actual portion from the Torah, they may fulfill this obligation from the Megillah, because the entire premise of the Megillah rests and commemorating, or rather remembering that which Amalek did to us. That is the entire story of Purim. Now, um, I'm going to skip a little bit, continuing on the third line. Benerot Chanukah, this is relevant to us. With regard to the Chanukah candles, there is an allusion to this as well in Parashat Beha'alotecha, when there's a, there's a Midrash that Rabbi Mitrani is quoting. This Midrash is not currently in our hands. It is quoted by Nachmanides in his commentary to the Torah. We don't, I, let me correct myself. We only in recent years were able to locate this. It is cited in a work called Osara Midrashim, which is a compilation of uh, obscure and, and otherwise lost Midrashim until this past century. And only recently have we discovered this. The Midrash says something very beautiful. It says as follows. This is uh, in Parashat Naso, right? When the 12 princes of the Jewish people offered their offerings to commemorate, or excuse me, to honor the inauguration of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. All of the princes of Israel offered this, with the exception of the tribe of Levi. And of course, the, the Kohanim. They did not offer anything that day, during those days, rather. Likewise, the tribe of Levi did not offer it. And because of that, Aharon's mind became weary. He, he didn't feel good about this. How is it that the temple that I'm going to be serving in for the rest of my life is not inaugurated by me? That doesn't seem very fair. So God in response says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I need you to tell Aharon the following. Tell him, there's going to be another Chanukah. It's not just the one for the, for the Mishkan. There will be another Chanukah coming up. And I am going to perform, I'm going to make this inauguration, the upcoming or the next inauguration, only by means of Aharon's children, and it will be done in a miraculous and in a, uh, a manner of salvation by saving the Jewish people. Right, this is in reference to the Hanukkah of the Hasmonians, which were, of course, from the line of Kohanim. Why is Rabbi Mitrani going to such great lengths to point to the allusions in the Torah for Purim and Hanukkah? Again, 
this boils down to the original point that I made that when we institute new holidays, when our sages institute new holidays, it doesn't stem out of nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't grow in a vacuum. The roots for these institutions have their basis already in the Torah and everything that stems from the institution of uh, the five books of, of Moses from, from the Chumash, as, you know, as we would call it, is the only thing that would validate a new holiday. Um, I'm going to skip source number two. Source number two is a point that I wanted to bring from Nachmanides, for those who are interested in reading it. Um, he draws an allusion to an additional merit that Aharon had, whereby the, the memorial was not actually the lighting of the menorah that the Hashmonaim did in the time of the second temple, but it's actually a reference to the lighting of the menorah or the, the Hanukkah rather, that each and every single one of us partake in every Hanukkah, ledore dorot, in every generation. And he says that's also why Birkat Kohanim is juxtaposed to the parasha, the portion of the Torah of the princes. Just like the Birkat Kohanim is a form of avodah, it's a form of divine service, and the Kohanim engage in that in all generations and in all places, so too the can lighting of the candles of the, of the Hanukkah that we light every year um, is in the merit of Aharon uh, and his descendants. Anyway, it's a minor side point, but I thought it would be appropriate. Uh, source number two, I will skip, or rather sources number two and three, I will get back to. I will get back to them. Source number four, okay. So far we've established why we're allowed to celebrate Hanukkah and Purim, and that there has to be basis in the Torah for that. Now I want to touch on the scroll or the books that we, uh, that we, you know, we're calling into question today. Why wasn't Maccabees canonized as part of the Tanakh, as part of the Nebi'im or Ketubim? The following excerpt is from a work known as Halichot Teman. Halichot Teman, very difficult book to get a hold of. I went through great lengths to get a hold of this, and I was gifted this book by my dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Yonatan Halevi. I should live and be well. He, uh, the author is the late Rabbi Yosef Kafir, Alava Shalom, a tremendous scholar, Talmid Chacham, first class. And this book is devoted to the customs of the Jews in Sana'a, in, in, in Yemen, particularly in Sana'a. And over here, he talks about a very interesting practice. He says in the, sec in the second line over here, During the period when the Hanukkah was lit, during the nights of the period of Hanukkah, some teachers would teach children. It was a minhag for teachers to teach children during this period of time, right? Which group of children? Those students, 11, 12 years old, pre-bar mitzvah, right? Pre-bat mitzvah, maybe. Gamet megilat antiochus bimkora, Likewise, they would teach the children megilat antiochus in its original Aramaic, something we obviously uh, ought not take for granted, or maybe we do take it for granted, that every child, every boy and girl in Yemen knew uh, perfect Aramaic to study the scroll of Antiochus in its original. Um, but that, that was a custom that they had in Sana. Sabi Mahari Kafir, my grandfather, 
to be a chiyakafi of blessed memory. Gam in Targum, on the Arabic. He would also write, he would also teach the uh, scroll of Antiochus, Megillar Antiochus, to the children, to the students rather, with the Arabic tafsir, with the Arabic translation of, excuse me, of the original Aramaic. Now, this is relevant. And by the way, this is not only the custom in Yemen, it is also practice that is recorded as early as the, the early 12th century in Italy. Rabbi Shai'ah Ditrani, one of the greatest of greatest of uh, the Rishonim, the medieval Jewish scholars from Italy in the 12th century, also records that the custom in Rome and the custom throughout the, the, Itali the um, Italian peninsula was to recite Megillat Antiochus in the synagogue, but without a beracha. Again, key term over there is without a beracha. It is not a part of the canon. Megillat Antiochus, by the way, is distinct. It is a separate work relative to the Book of Maccabees. Maccabees was, I, I'm no historian, but the, you know, various uh, uh, historians and biblical scholars claim they debate as to whether it was written in Greek originally or in Aramaic originally. It's quite unclear. But Megillat Antiochus is a similar but different account. According to Rabbi Sa'adiyah Gaon, it was originally composed by Matityahu, the Maccabee, and, and his, and his uh, school of Kohanim, and it was later redacted in the time of the Mishnah. So says Rabbi Sa'adiyah Gaon. Okay. Anyway, the reason why I cite this uh, excerpt is to point out that we already see precedent for the study of non-canonical works dating from the biblical period. There is precedent as of now for us to see that it's not something that's off limits. We could study it despite the fact that this is not canonical, okay? Here in source five, uh, it's quite lengthy, but I brought it for those who want to study it inside. Maimonides is very, very clear in the beginning of his Mishneh Torah. In the laws of Yesodea Torah, the foundations of the Torah, this is quite a, a foundational uh, concept in our, in our religion. He states that from the time the Torah was given, we have a concept of the Torah remaining eternal and supreme, and that it is, it is quote unquote, no longer in the heavens. In other words, a prophet may not at any point in time from the lifetime of, uh, of Moshe Rabbeinu and onwards uh, appear to us and reinvent the wheel shall we say, right? I will read from the second halakha here in source number five, from where it says bet in the middle of the page. Lefikach, he says, therefore, if any individual were to arise in an authoritative capacity, whether that person be a Jew or a non-Jew. By the way, you see from here that Maimonides, as we'll see in a moment, does acknowledge the prophetic abilities of all people of the world. Okay, anyway. The Yase Otomofet, whereby he would perform some sort of, some sort of uh, wondrous act, uh, a sign. Uh, and in doing so, this prophet claims that God had sent him to add a particular misvah to the Torah beyond those 613 precepts that we were given 
um, you know, from the time of Sinai and throughout our course in the wilderness. Or ligroa mitzvah, or to, to subtract from the mitzvot. Or to, to uh, prescribe a definition, parameters for the mitzvot, beyond that or other than that which we heard from Moshe Rabbeinu directly. That's a pretty, pretty interesting series of criteria that Maimonides gives. Or if this prophet says, yeah, those, those commandments you were given, they were valid once upon a time, but now no, no longer binding. Don't worry about it, Israel. Go enjoy your, your cheeseburgers, your, your ham, what have you. And in, the, and in such a case, this is such an individual as a false prophet. Why is he considered a false prophet? What if God, in fact, really wants to add a mitzvah? What's wrong with adding a mitzvah? What's wrong with subtracting a mitzvah? It's God. He could do whatever he wants. Not so fast. Says Maimonides, Because he is effectively, such a prophet is coming to uh, uh, negate the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu, that which every single Israelite present heard with their own ears, saw with their own eyes, and therefore... This prophet's not doing the same thing, is he? He's so, sort of an inferior prophet, Moshe Rabbeinu. So he cannot effectively contradict anything which Moshe Rabbeinu said. That was a public revelation, which all of us uh, as a nation were present for. And therefore he's killed. Umitato Bechanek, Maimonides says. He effectively is executed by the courts, uh, by strangulation. Because he wantonly acted by instructing things which God had never said to do. And Maimonides goes on to uh, elaborate upon the dangers of false prophets. And then he ends off very, very important point over here in, in uh, Gimel number three. He says, in Ken, therefore, why does the Torah say that I'm going to raise a prophet from among your brethren? He says the purpose of the prophet, any prophet after Moshe Rabbeinu, and so that means any work of the Nabi'im, anything in it that we read from the Haftarah and Shabbat, right? Anything that you write, that you find in the books of the Ketubim, Tehillim, Mishleh, all those books, they aren't coming to reinvent the wheel. They are not coming to reinvent the law or the religion. If anybody studies the Nabi'im, the Haftarot, the works of the Ketubim properly, you will see that they are only coming to reinforce that which we find in the five books that Moshe Rabbeinu transmitted to us. Only that which is written in the Torah. And to warn the people not to violate the mitzvot and to observe the mitzvot to the best of their ability. Just like the last of the prophets, Malachi. Malachi says in the last chapter of his work, this is a, a, memor uh, a memorial or a memorandum of the same exact content that uh, Moshe, my servant, this is, this is God speaking right now. So he calls him Moshe, my servant, right? That Malachi is merely repeating the same essence, the same content that really Moshe Rabbeinu has instructed us the entire time throughout the course of the five books of the Torah. Okay, so 
we've established, uh, and again, this, this point is reiterated in a very, very succinctly in source number six from Rabbeinu Nisim of Gerondi, otherwise known as just Rabbeinu Nisim, 14th century uh, giant of giants also from Spain, from Gerona. He's commenting on the passage in the Talmud, in Tractate Nadarim. The Talmud says that had the Jewish people not committed uh, criminal acts and sins, they would only have been given the five books of the Torah and the book of Yoshua. All the other books of the, of the Tanakh would have been redundant. They would never have been given. But the Jewish people are not angels. They commit sins and crimes. And so the purpose of the prophets and of the Ketubim only serves to guide the people in that capacity. And that's what Rabbeinu Nisim says. He says essentially, for those who want to read it inside, that um, they only serve the purpose of guidance for the people, but not to reinvent the wheel. The book of Joshua was necessary. It's the only book from the Nebi'im that is needed to be given to the people, because without it, the Jewish people would never know how to divide the land upon entering uh, the land of Israel. You need to know how to divide the land that you know is our eternal inheritance, right? Okay. Source number seven is the first time we see debate in the literature of the Tanaim. So approximately, you know, mid third, uh, late third and fourth centuries with regard to the, the canonization of the books of the, of the Tanakh. In the little header you see on the left-hand side where it says 13, by the way, just for those who are not familiar, the Tosefta is a work that is a supplement to the Mishnah. It serves effectively as a, the pieces that are additional commentary that made the that would make the Mishnah very lengthy. And so the Tosefta is basically the um, you could call it the appendices to the Mishnah. Tosefta says as follows: Hagilyonim, Besifrei Haminim. Gilionim literally means the margins, right? Those, those uh, uh, religious commentaries and works of the sectarians. When you see Sifre Minin in the literature, in the Tanaitic literature, it's usually in reference to the early Christians. They were the only sectarian group at the time that really was, you know, meriting and, and worthy of prominence. You had some, some sort of remnants to the literalists, fringe groups that stem from the Sadducees. I guess you can call them Sadducees, but in, it was usually in reference to the early Christians. So such works do not quote unquote defile the hands. When you see this term defiling of the hands, this is also code for something which is canonical. For reasons that I won't get into, there is a rabbinic uh, decree that all scrolls, which are a part of our canon, to emit a ritual form of impurity upon the hands, right? This is one of the reasons why, for example, one of the reasons why we do not touch the Sefer Torah, the Torah scroll with bare hands. Others contest, contest this position in Halakha, but that's something I'll, have, I'll be happy to discuss privately. Additionally, Sifre ben Sirah, I saw some people in the Chabura chats discussing the book of Ben Sirah earlier this week. So here we go. 
תוספתא says, בן סירה וכל ספרים שנכתבו מכאן ואילך אינן מטמאים את הידיים. This is the key point of the תוספתא. בן סירה and all of the works that were written from this point and onward. What is this point and onward? This point and onward is, like I said earlier, in reference to the redaction of the biblical canon during the period of the Tanaim. Again, roughly the late third and fourth centuries. Um, the book of Ben Sirah, by the way, for those who don't know, is basically a Mishlei, a Proverbs, you know, um, uh, second version, an updated, I guess you can say, version of, of, of Mishlei. I happen to have two editions of it, the Kahana edition, which is like the uh, earliest collection of the Hebrew, original Hebrew fragments of Ben Sirah, and the Anchor Bible, you know, despite being uh, largely composed of academics and, and, you know, many people who have, shall we say, unorthodox views, in fairness, do present a fair translation and collection of many of Ben Sirah's proverbs from the Greek manuscripts, Aramaic manuscripts. It's an interesting thing to have. Uh, nevertheless, the key term over here is that these works do not defile the hands. They are not canonical because they simply miss the cutoff. It's, it's really that simple. There is a cutoff period uh, for reasons that we'll see in a moment. And this cutoff period essentially prevents certain works from being canonized. It was composed too late into the game. Let me be clear. It's not that the vote to admit Ben Sirah into the canon took place at too late of a date. It's that the work itself was composed at too late of a date, which is why in uh, Header 14, you will see a debate among the Tanaim with regard to the canonicity of Shira Shirim, right? Rabbi Shimon Demenasya Omer, Shira Shirim Shira Shirim defiles the hands, i.e., it is canonical. Because it was stated with the holy force or force of the divine. I'm going to touch back on this term, Ruach HaKodesh. Uh, as one of my final points in the shiur, God willing, we will touch on what that means exactly. But that's one of the criteria that is needed for a book to be canonical. Kohelet is not canonical, according to the Tosefta. This view is rejected, by the way. But Kohelet, according to this view, is not canonical because it's simply words of wisdom. In other words, it, 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 met, the, it met the criteria to, uh, to be an early work of Shelemo HaMelech, right? Shelemo himself has composed other works which merited the canon, but Kohelet doesn't meet it because it doesn't really have words of the divine force behind it. It's just wisdom. Now, in the source number eight, Abot Rabbi Natan, if you remember what I described about the Tosefta being an appendix to the Mishnah, Abot Rabbi Natan is the same thing for Pirkei Abot. It's an appendix to Pirkei Abot. It's unfortunate that not too many people study it. It's a very, very fascinating work which deserves more study, especially during the Sefirata Omer time when we are all studying Pirkei Abot. At any rate, the Abot Rabbi Natan goes through a series of sources that uh, are concerning with regard to the canonicity of some works. I'm going to go from the fifth line over here excuse me, from the fourth line, where you see the underlined portion. 
Abba Shaul Omer, Lo Shehimtinu, in the view of the sage Abba Shaul, uh, it is not enough that a person take his time when evaluating situations, especially a judge sitting before a court. You know, the, the, the sages over here caution that a judge take his time with cases, specifically with regard to the, to the books being admitted into the canon. And so Abba Shaul says, we are not really worried that the judges of our supreme institutions would not take their time. Rather, the thing that they have to be careful to do is interpreting the works that are being presented for the canon. Rather, when the sages admitted certain books, it's not that they were patient with evaluating it, it's that they were able to interpret the works in a particular manner. What does that mean? Tosefta gives an example, the Avot de Rabinatan gives an example. Bari Shona, Hayu Omrim, originally the sages would say that Proverbs, Shira Shirim, Kohelet, Genuzim Hayu, these are all to be buried in the ground, they are not a part of the canon. Shehem Hayu Omrim, Mishalot, because these works would only describe parables and relate parables. Ve'enan mina ketubim, nor are they a part of the, the writings. And so the sages did that. They actually discarded these works at one point in time, according to this report, and they did not merit to be a part of the canon. Until the men of the great assembly, this is in reference to Ezra the scribe, Nehemiah, and their colleagues on the Supreme Court of Israel, among them many prophets, such as Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They came along and said, no, you completely misunderstood the context of these works. And we are going to reinstitute them as part of being part of the canon. From here, you see, by the way, that a future Supreme Court of Israel, pending certain criteria that we haven't discussed, could theoretically recanonize certain works. That is a possibility. Okay. Source number nine is a portion from the Talmud and Tractate Shabbat. It discusses one of the criteria for being uh, for a work uh, being canonized as being consistent. A work that is a part of the Jewish canon cannot contradict itself, which is why the book of Ezekiel, Yeheskel, almost merited being discarded, excuse me, almost was warranting of being discarded because the sages saw Yeheskel, second line where you see the underlined portion, it says, It the words of Yechezkel, uh, excuse me, I didn't discuss this part, this part yet. Uh, the, the words of the Nevi'im or any work that is being submitted to uh, the court to be a part of the Nevi'im or the Ketuvim may not contradict that which the Torah says. Right? That was the portion from Maimonides that we read earlier in source number two or three, was it? It also cannot contradict itself, but I'll get to that in a moment. Here are a list of five cases, okay? There are five, there, there happen to be more, but I can't give every single case. There are five cases I listed over here where Yechezkel at first glance contradicts that which the Torah says. Obviously, Yechezkel is a part of the canon and that's because the sages were able to clarify and interpret through tradition that Yechezkel in fact did not mean what he means at face value in these contexts. Right. One of the, the first contexts over here, if you're interested in going through this later, you may, has to do with the reason why the Jewish people were exiled into Egypt. 
uh, or excuse me, why they were redeemed from their exile in Egypt. According to Yeskel, we were redeemed from Egypt so as to not make God look too harsh and, and uh, deceiving of his people by leaving them in exile for too long. In Shemot, though, the Torah tells us that God saved us because we were in anguish and, and the creator of the universe is Olam is compassionate and merciful. Two totally different messages there, right? Likewise, the entire 40th chapter of Yechezkel gives lengthy elaborations of, of how the temple ought to look and the dimensions given by Yechezkel are very, you know, very out of the ordinary. They match nothing at all in any manner whatsoever. The dimensions given, I shouldn't say in any manner whatsoever, but they're very far off from the dimensions given to King Solomon and certainly not really in line with the descriptions given for the Mishkan as we read in the Torah. And so Maimonides has to go to great lengths. This is based on different passages in the Talmud and he shows what Yechezkel really meant. It's not to be taken at face, face value. Uh, also certain women that Kohanim were able to marry, certain things that pertain to the laws of shaving and haircutting, they are all not to be found in the Torah or sometimes opposite of what the Torah says. So again, it, there needed to be very, very careful deliberation for this book to become canonized by the sages. Similarly, source number 10, Tractate Shabbat, relates that, uh, that which I was discussing earlier, that the words of a canonical book cannot contradict itself. Kohelet is full of these things, okay? For example, in one source, uh, Kohelet relates, What is the purpose of man's toiling that he toils under the sun. Life is, is, is vanity. This oldest work that we do is futile, you know, YOLO, as we would say nowadays, right? Um, Kohelet seems to say that, and that's a, that's a pretty heretical view. How, 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 how on earth can King Solomon say that there's no point to anything we do? Does he not believe in Olam Abba? He doesn't believe in the world to come where we're ultimately judged and assessed for our actions here in this world? Again, you don't have to read it that way, but it, it gives that impression. Similarly, in one place in Kohelet, King Solomon says that uh, anger is better than you know, lightheadedness or lightheartedness. And, uh, uh, and in another uh, location in Kohelet, he says, to lightheartedness, I say, you are very praiseworthy. So which is it? Is lightheartedness a good thing or a bad thing? I, I don't... He's, he's not being consistent, right? Um, and, and again, chapter two of Kohelet, it says, I praise, uh, I praise happiness or joyfulness. And later on, he says, right? And with regard to happiness, what's the point of happiness? Eh, it doesn't really do anything. So here you have King Solomon contradicting himself, contradicting himself on numerous instances which can be confusing to the lay, lead, the lay reader. The words of our prophets and the words of our ketubi must be intelligible to a lay reader. The Talmud has a certain terminology for this. It's called kereberab, the reading of the students of the rabbis. In other words, that which is so simple that even the little schoolboys and the schoolgirls can read on their own and they can understand it, right? You have... Um, 
you have various statements throughout the Talmud also where different sages would, would uh, quiz the little children on the spot when they would see them coming out of school and they would, they would, they would ask, ask them, Pesokli Pesukecha, tell me the verse that you learned in, in the yeshiva today and they'd be able to rattle off the verse and it was seen as a, you know, a playful and a, you know, a beautiful practice. But uh, you see from here that the works of our Tanakh must be intelligible to a lay audience obviously assuming we're, we're talking about a Hebrew-speaking audience. Okay. Source number 11 is also a complaint against Kohelet. Uh, some of the words over here, notin litzad minut, they suggest heretical or sectarian ideals, which is why the sages had to be very careful in their deliberation of Kohelet and admitting it into the canon. Source number 12, I apologize for going through many of these outside, but a uh, topic like this requires a plethora of sources and I thought better to discuss it outside. And for those who want to read it inside at a later time, you, you know, you may do so. Uh, this is actually a very, very important source. Source number 12, Harbe, it's a, from the Talmud and Tractate Megillah. Talmud says, Harbe amadu lahem God had, he, he had left an abundant amount of profits for the Jewish people, right? Almost double the amount of those who had left Egypt during the Exodus. From the time we were a nation until, you know, our parting from the prophets, there have been God knows how many prophets. Ela, so then why aren't the, these works of those prophets in our Tanah? If you believe in prophecy, if we as Jews believe in a concept of the creator communicating with certain individuals, namely the prophets, then why aren't their works a part of the canon? So says the Talmud, that which was needed for all future generations, which is relevant and necessary to teach lessons to future generations, that is incorporated into the canon. And if it is not necessary, then it is not written. It's, it's that simple. Plain and simple, which is why, by the way, it, this, this passage in the Talmud really warrants our attention because very often we go through portions, especially the weekly Torah portion, the weekly Haftarah portion, and we sort of think, oh yeah, this is, of what relevance is this to me? Every single word in the Torah, every single word in the prophets, in the prophets merit our attention in, insofar as their relevance to us nowadays. There are, there are lessons to be derived if one studies carefully enough. Source number 13 from the Bimeir Halevi Abu Lafia. He was one of the greatest of greatest Chachamim from Toledo, uh, mid 13th century, early 13th century rather. Um, he had a whole restatement of the Talmud that we really only have fragments of. It's a shame. He was a, a brilliant linguist, very poetic writer, and he wrote a beautiful, lengthy commentary explaining the whole Talmud. We only have fragments of it. Anyway, he says that sectarian works, those works that are considered quote-unquote heretical or sectarian, he says those are only works, I'm reading the underlying portion, they explain or elucidate upon the works of the prophets or upon prophecy, 
And they relied on their own uh, uh, intuition, if you will, or their own views, their own personal conjecture without relying upon the tradition of the sages. That is considered a sectarian work that is off limits. This excludes then some works that we've, that we've discussed above, such as Ben Sirah, right? Ben Sirah does not meet this criteria of being a banned work because it does rely upon the tradition of the sages. The Talmud quotes Ben Sirah five in five or six instances, if not more. But um, again, as we saw in the Tosefta, it merely didn't make the canon, just like the scroll of Antiochus from the, relating the Hanukkah story, didn't make the canon for the mere and simple reason that it was composed too late into the game. And what that means is it either did not have prophetic backing or it was simply considered redundant and unnecessary for future, for future generations. This theory is also confirmed by Rebiyot Tob Asavili uh, from Seville, uh, the Ritba, known popularly as the Ritba. He was a, a, a later Spanish uh, sage from the medieval period, approximately uh, you know, late 14th century. And he also says in his commentary to the Talmud that even though the book of Ben Siran, other post-biblical works are referred to as Sefarim Chisoniim, apocryphal works that are, you know, outside the, the scope of tradition. He says, Shemamina, we learn from the, the, the following Talmudic passage that the Ritva is commenting on. There, when the sages discuss these quote-unquote apocryphal works, they are only coming to uh, caution us from making them established works. In other words, here the Ritba is telling us what is, what is the significance of something being quote unquote canon, right? We haven't addressed that question. It's pretty fundamental, but who cares if something is or is not canon? What does that mean exactly? What that means is it is an established work with which you have to contend. If there is a verse in a canonical work, you can't just say, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. I'm going to dismiss it. If something in there is troubling or is unclear, as Jews, we ought to, we have an obligation to clarify what that means, whether that content is theological, whether that content is legal, if there are mitzvot involved, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If it's not something that is canonical, you don't have to deal with it. If there are words, for example, in Ben Sirah, right, this is actually one of the complaints that uh, the book of Maccabees and Ben Sirah both have. In the book of Maccabees, there are numerous verses that defy logic. They, they're unclear and they don't make sense. And they seemingly even go against the, what the Torah prescribes in certain instances. Uh, the author of Maccabees sometimes conflates various ideas as being biblical when in fact they are rabbinic, et cetera, et cetera. I've attached a list of those cases at the end of this source sheet for those who want to read it. But um, I don't have to contend with that author's mistake. Right? It's not a canonical work, and therefore his mistake is his problem. It, it's not a work that was vetted by the court. If the, if, the, if the work was in fact vetted by the Supreme Court of Israel, then I have a problem. I have to deal with its content. Its content is binding precedent upon me. Okay. Source number 14, I jumped from because it's uh, quite lengthy, but it's probably one of the most significant sources that I've cited here today. Here, Nachmanides talks about the prohibition of adding to the mitzvot. In his commentary to the Torah, 
Nachmanides over here says that there is apparently in his view, and he admits that it is his view, but in his view, he believes there is a problem to add to the holidays unless there is root or basis or commemoration that the holiday acknowledges that stems back to the Torah. And he brings from the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, some people say Palestinian Talmud. I don't like that. Um, so, so he brings a source from the, from the Jerusalem Talmud that elaborates upon the story of Purim and how the sages were about to ban the book of Esther and they condemned Esther for requesting a new holiday until they sat down and they sat for a long period of time to trace the biblical what the holiday of Purim actually commemorates from the Bible. As we said, it's really a, comm a commemoration of that which Amalek did to us and how the Jewish people triumphed over Amalek. That is a biblical mandate. So I can institute a holiday, a rabbinic holiday based on that. If it in fact was without any basis, without any commemoration to that which is in the Torah, not only can there not be a scroll or a book in the, in the Tanakh for that, but there also cannot be a holiday for that. That would be unwarranted. And he says that is, in fact, exactly what Yarovam, the evil king, did when he instituted new holidays. And in the Book of Kings, you know, if you if you review those passages, uh, I believe it's chapter 12. Yeah, uh, uh, chapter 12 uh, in 1 Kings, Melachim Aleph, you will see that, in fact, this is a condemned act by King Yarovam. Our final source is over here. I would like to just leave this outside because I really want to get to the final source, which is the most important. Source number 16 would be David Kimchi, the, one of the greatest of commentators on the book of Bereshit and on the prophets. In his introduction to the book of Tehillim, he makes a very important distinction between the Nebi'im and the Ketubim. We often think of those books which we read as part of the Haftarah portion, as, you know, the prophets and the Ketubim. Kohelet, Esther, Mishle, what have you. They're in two different categories, but why are they in two different categories? What, what, what makes them any different from one another? In fact, there are certain books that don't even seem to belong in the writings. Daniel, Daniel was a prophet, yes? Why is he not mentioned in the book of the prophets then? Why is he in the writings? So it would be uh, David Kimchi over here. Uh, draws one fundamental principle as the reason for this. That principle is how the work was composed. Any work which you find in the prophets was composed by the prophets while he was in a state of slumber. The mind interprets the message either from a messenger or from no messenger. It could be merely words that he heard some of us, even when we dream, you know, if you if you recall your dream, you'll often remember a message that you heard without seeing or putting any picture to the, the thing or the person speaking. So these, these prophecies were related in writing in a state when being given to the prophet in the state of sleep. And that is called Nebu'ah. That is called prophecy. Unlike the writings, the writings were given Beruah HaKodesh. Parenthetically, I said I would get back to this point, so I will. Ruach HaKodesh, Maimonides says it, it, it refers to that force which emanates from the Kodesh. He writes this in the guide. Similarly, the great uh, commentator, Rabbi Abraham ibn Ezra, he says the same, the same thing. 
right? Yishlach Ezracha Mikodesh, we say in Tigrim, right? He sends his aid from the Kodesh, from the portion of the Mikdash that is from of the temple that is known as the Kodesh. It is a force that stems from there that aids an individual in his thoughts or his articulation. And the author is still awake when doing so. That's, it's a subtle minor difference in states of consciousness, but that, that is the only difference between prophecy and Ruach HaKodesh. Okay, Parent, uh, last side point, but it's an important one. Alava Shalom, Chacham Yosef Faur once pointed out, he points out in a, for those who know him, he, he writes in a few of his works that Kitbe HaKodesh, the, known as the Holy Scriptures, he says, no, it's not Holy Scriptures. HaKodesh is a proper noun. That is in reference to those texts which were deposited in the Ark, in the Holy. Those works which were deposited by the court and by the Kohanim as serving official, as serving in an official capacity as works of the Jewish people. Finally, and lastly, and then I will take questions. You have over here the last source from Rabbeinu Se'ad Yagaon. He wrote this book called Sefer Hagilui. It was a work that was written in response to various claims that the rabbis in Baghdad had against him. They didn't really like him. He was an outsider, a dirty Egyptian making his way into Baghdad. How dare he? Who was he? Uh, and and um, Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagaon wrote a whole series of works defending his positions and himself to the rabbis in Baghdad. This is one of them. This translation, I will admit, is an early translation into Hebrew of the work. There have been other, because it was originally written in, Ar in, Ju in Judeo-Arabic. Um, the most up-to-date edition was written by Alava Shalom, the late Professor Yoshua Blau. You can find this edition in select libraries and really only in Israel. At any rate, he, he sums up everything that we just said in one page. It's beautiful. He says that the 24 books of the Kitbeha HaKodesh, right? He says that, uh, I'm just trying to see where we should, where I should read from. So, so in uh, line number seven, he says that those works of the like of Ben Sirah and Ben Iri, I'm not familiar with that work, I will be honest. Uvene Hashmonai, right, and the work and the and the the work which the the works which the Maccabees composed, as well as Bene Africa. I also I don't know that work which comes from Africa. I'm not familiar with it, but apparently that was a work that was contested. He says they didn't make the cutoff for being in the Tanakh, right? Below Echad Mehem because not one of these uh, uh, took the capacity of prophecy. Remember, we needed prophecy or Ruach HaKodesh as a prerequisite for a book being canonical. These books didn't have it, so they didn't make, they didn't make the cutoff. So he says, however, you should know that the sign, there are three signs for works which make their way into the camp. Works of prophets or prophetic works must be mentioned in, uh, excuse me, works, uh, words addressed to a prophet must be mentioned in them. For example, in the Torah, you will always see by Daber Adonai Moshe Lemor or Amar Hashem Leso and So. 
Or alternatively, if God doesn't speak to the prophet directly, there must be indication that the individual in the book knows something that is impossible to know. Like in Esther, right? How on earth does the, does the author of Esther know what Haman is saying in his heart? Unless that's, of course, by means of Ruach HaKodesh or prophecy. And he says, Rabbeinu Sa'adya says, like in, the book, like in the book of Proverbs, Kohelet and Esther, you all see references to knowledge of the hidden, things that are impossible to know by an individual unless you, by prophetic means. And then he says that um, the work, of course, must be assessed by the court to be by a prophet, the prophet who is vetted, right? Prophets are vetted by the Supreme Court of Israel. This is a, not every Joe Schmo, not every John Doe can just appear before us and claim prophecy. He's vetted by the Jewish people, right? And then the most important point, line 14, Vashelishi, the Jewish people as a whole get to vote. They decide, they are the ultimate arbiters of what it is that makes its way into the canon, and they transmit it as our grandparents and great-grandparents transmit to us in every generation. Um, I will end off here for the sake of time and to take questions, but the next page, for those who are interested, you will see portions from Maccabees. I've underlined portions which are problematic according to the sages and according to our tradition and why it is that these portions warranted for the book not to make its way into the canon. Wow. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Um, I think if uh, anyone has questions, they can uh, raise the Zoom hand or maybe put it into the chat box and we can... Uh, I see two questions in the chat. Oh, never mind. I think I'll start, um, which is just technically when a Navi had a prophecy, did he first go to the Sanhedrin or to the Bedin and, and present his prophecy, then he wrote it down? Or she, and then and then it got um, approved? Or did he write it down and then take it to the Bedin? Like we're seeing all these like trying to test the book, but I'm saying if he's actually in a V already, then why do we care to test it, the, the, the text? Excellent question. There are two overlapping uh, concepts behind the question. Number one, a prophet himself must be vetted before actually declaring prophecy, prophecy to the Jewish people. The Geonim, the sages, you know, post the Talmudic period, you can find this in the work Sharet Teshubah, uh, subsection 14. Over there, the Geonim say that a Nabi is basically vetted and voted by the Supreme Court of Israel, by the Sanhedrin, in order for his prophecies to hold legal standing. You know, if he's coming to rebuke the people for certain crimes they are committing, if he's basically acting as God's prosecutor, for lack of better terms, and to, un unlike human prosecutors, to actually care for our well being. Um, then he has to be tested because he could be lying. I mean, he could, he could be making things up. Or if he's a prophet that wants to institute something like Esther did, right? Esther instituted Purim for us. The Hasmoneans instituted Hanukkah for us, right? So they, they can't just come out of nowhere and claim this. If, they, if they're claiming this by means of prophecy, they, A, the prophecy must be vetted by the court first. That's first. Second, 
even if the prophet is confirmed by the courts, the book itself may very well be prophetic. I went through a few sources that say that even if a work is quote unquote prophetic, it still may miss the cut, either because the words are confusing, it doesn't make sense, it, it apparently at, at, on the surface contradicts the Torah. I gave a whole variety of reasons. So the, the, the work itself, rule of thumb, this is really the rule of thumb, must be vetted by the court to be intelligible to a school child. If a school child, if a, if a little kid can read the book and understand the book, that is what matters. And if not, no. That's not to say, by the way, that the Tanakh is only understood on a superficial level. Obviously, it's incredibly, every work of the Tanakh is profound and deep, but at a basic level, school children must be able to understand. Two, two, you see two facets to that question. Thank you. Any other questions? People can just unmute if they want. Um, that being the case, then, when we say nevuah, we would expect the nevuah to be very clear to everyone if we're talking about nevuah. So why would a person experience nevuah and it be not clear in order for it to be recorded for all generations? I'm referring to um, source 12, where uh, it says, right. But we're talking about nevuah. So with regard to that question, is not in reference to unclear prophecy. It's in reference to prophecy which teaches lessons that are relevant and serve purpose for the Jewish people in every generation. That is considered I believe Rashi over there clarifies as such. Um, in other words, if a prophet is coming to address, let's say, a particular or case-specific problem of a particular generation, that's really nice, but it's not relevant to me in the year 2021. So it's not going to be included in the canon for the simple reason that I've had ten, uh, hundreds of thousands of prophets throughout Jewish history. By that same logic, I can incorporate God knows how many works into the canon. So there's no end, there's no end to it, as we say in Hebrew. There's no end if you're going to include every single prophecy that every um, minor prophet, as we call it, would have written so but what you are saying though is still true your the earlier comment you made about prophecy being unclear if if a prophecy is unclear then very often it would not make its way into the canon uh that's what that's what the sages were about to do to Yechezkel. they were about to do that had it not been for the fact that in fact a particular sage transmitted through tradition and he related to the court the interpretations that made sense of those verses Rabbi, could I ask a quick question about, um, and you might have answered already, um, but sorry if I missed something earlier. Um, uh, the new baby, it's, you know, going back and forth. Mazalto, of course. Thank you. Um, but uh, it's in regard to the, the court selecting Sephardim for, for, for Tanakh, for example. Is it a requirement that it, that it is of Nebuah? Meaning, since the court is deciding anyway of which books go in the canon or not, what if it wasn't from Nebuah, but it had a specific purpose which the court felt like was needed for the sake of the canon? In other words, is Nebuah an absolute requirement for a book to be included? 
as we read in the last source, as, as well as other sources that I read earlier on, yes, it is a requirement. Either Nebuah or Ruach HaKodesh. I went through the distinction between the two and what that means, but yes, that is, that is one of the prerequisites. Otherwise, it's included in the broader scope of Israel's wisdom literature. And by wisdom literature, I don't, I'm not referring to the academic, the way the academics use it to refer to Proverbs and, and Eob, and I don't mean that. I mean, it is a part of the literature that we treat with you know, importance, but it is not binding precedent upon me. I don't have to contend with difficulties in it if it does not have Nebuah or Ruach HaKodesh. So Ben Sirah is the best example of this. The scroll of Antiochus relating to the Hanukkah story is a great example of this. They are both legitimate works that are worthy of study and definitely part of the Jewish tradition, but they have no prophecy behind them. So they are not canonical. Maccabees is a little different because there are actually verses in Maccabees that really don't make sense from the point of view of Jewish law. So that's why that's why Maccabees didn't make the canon. Yeah, I Thank hope you. that answers your question. Any other questions? Do we have any other hands? Um, I think maybe last one, but uh, just to clarify, in the, in the opening, um, the Rav said that in order to be in, in, in institutionalized as a holiday, there must be source in the Torah, like some, some earlier source. I'm saying, but that, is, that in and of itself is a remez, meaning ex post facto, like we come and then we just find, I can do that for anything. So it's not really a, a requirement like I need to have a. Okay, no, no. Your question is a very good question, and it's a very valid point. But what you have to identify: what does it mean, remez? The first source I cited from Rabbi Moshe Mitrani quoted quoted a, a passage from the sages relating to a remez for Hanukkah in the Torah, or also the sages refer to remez la ester mina Torah minayin. From where do we have an allusion to ester in the Torah? Remez is something which is a, uh, how do I say this, a, uh, a statement or remark in the Torah that may be understood from a linguistic point of view as extending to another object. So, for example, um, the concept of abelut, mourning. We have, a, we have a, a concept of shiba in the Torah that's rabbinic, but the first day of mourning is from the Torah. Where do we know that from? Kikabor bayomahu, or excuse me, uh, burial. I'm, I'm, I'm referring to burial, not abilut. But uh, burial is in reference to, in the book of Debarim, it's in reference to only those who are executed by the court. There is no direct reference to burial for a normal law-abiding citizen. Rather, the Chachamim register this as an illusion or this alludes to an institution of burial that already existed. It's understood that you're going to bury law-abiding and good citizens if you're going to bury these wicked people who deserve to be killed by the court. So it's up to the court to register something as being an illusion from the Torah, but the cases are very case-specific. They have to make sense linguistically and contextually and historically. It can't just be ad hoc. It cannot be I decide there is a hint, therefore there is. Right? We're not Rene Descartes over here. So. Okay. Thank you. Does that make um, sense? 
Yes, uh, thank you. Um, if you have one time for just one last one, I think uh, we have a question in the chat box and then uh, we'll, we'll close it. Oh, for, for I did not see this. Okay, question over here. Okay, the question over here pertains to whether or not Daniel was a prophet. This, this, is a, this is debated among the different medieval scholars, medieval Jewish philosophers. Uh, according to Maimonides, very briefly, he was not a prophet in the sense that he did not have the content to merit making his work into the book of the Nabi'im. His prophecies were, the dreams that he had were not dreams in the prophetic capacity. And when he did have prophecy, it wasn't, um, it, it did not make up the bulk of the work. There are in fact portions of Daniel, which were quote unquote prophetic. He was in a state of slumber and Bore Olam communicated with him, but the bulk of the work is not about that. Uh, so there are other issues with Daniel that technical things that I won't get into right now, um, such as, you know, his state of physical um, wholeness or completeness. One of the requirements for a Navi is that he has to be physically fully intact and Daniel, according to some was not, but uh, I, I won't really elaborate beyond that. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Rav. Thank you so much everyone for coming. It was really insightful and uh, excited to have the Rav uh, join on next time, whenever that may be. Uh, stay tuned and uh, the recording will go up onto the website and uh, thank you everyone. Chag Sameach. Chanukah Sameach to everyone. Chazak Ubaruch.